You know, you cannot be too Jewish. Thank you. I couldn't possibly agree more. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Susan Bloomberg Kaysen, author of Bernadette's Shanghai Salon. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. It's Thanksgiving this week, a holiday that used to be just about the least controversial one of the whole year, but which has moved somewhat into the realm of the controversial recently. Allow me to explain. When I was growing up, the shared American holidays were New Year's, Lincoln's birthday, Washington's birthday, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Almost all of those had some complications associated with them. New Year's Eve inevitably was filled with drunk driving deaths and arrests and police checkpoints to prevent all that. Lincoln's birthday was not celebrated south of the Mason-Dixon line. Washington's birthday was later combined with Lincoln's to make a President's Day three-day weekend. In fact, all the holidays were kind of manipulated to create three- or four-day weekends, while Memorial Day was a peculiar early beginning to summer for most of us who didn't have relatives who died in America's wars. And growing up in California, we then went back to school for three more weeks. During the Vietnam War and throughout the 70s and 80s, the 4th of July became a flashpoint for dueling views of America among Americans. Labor Day was a celebration of unionization, which was uncontroversial initially in my time, but became hotly debated in the anti-union decades that followed. Christmas was nice for Christians, but the buildup in particular could be challenging for non-Christians, you know, like Jews, who were forced to sing Christmas carols about the birth of a Savior we didn't share if we wanted to be in the school play or in chorus or madrigals. Just saying. Plus, months of ads for stuff and carols playing bloody well everywhere. Only Thanksgiving seemed to sit above controversy, unless you happen to be a turkey. Other holidays in my lifetime appeared, and some disappeared. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was finally added in 1983, after 15 years of activism, including by singer Stevie Wonder, but it took an additional 17 more years to be added in all the states, including Arizona, which didn't approve it until a public referendum in 1992. Two states still don't celebrate it fully. Alabama and Mississippi somehow combine it with Robert E. Lee Day. Now that's cognitive dissonance, to have King Lee Day. Veterans Day was a legal holiday for the government and for banks, of course, but not generally celebrated by most people if they weren't military veterans or relatives. And while less controversial, since it was essentially a celebration of the end of World War I, Veterans Day never had the broad appeal in my time of other holidays. It seemed like an echo of Memorial Day half a year later. 
Columbus Day used to be a day off of school and sometimes from work while banks were closed. Banks still are closed then. They take every chance they get, don't they? But Columbus's very mixed personal record and Columbus Day's direct association with the annihilation of native populations and the usurpation of their lands has not endeared it to recent generations. But Thanksgiving seemed above all that. A day to show gratitude for the food we have, to eat and enjoy. A day to spend with family and friends and to invite guests to share our table. Oh, and you can watch that Peanuts special, too. A day based, in theory, on the Harvest Festival of Sukkot in the Bible, the Feast of Tabernacles and of Gratitude. A day not tied to military triumph or a particular individual, not directly connected to any current religious practice. A day we can say thank you for whatever we have. What could be controversial about that? You know, I've always called Thanksgiving a truly Jewish holiday. What else can you call a holiday when you invite over all your relatives, including the ones you don't like, and overeat? Definitely Jewish. Well, legally, Thanksgiving became an established national holiday observed in America back in 1863 in the midst of the brutal American Civil War when Abraham Lincoln proclaimed it as such. With a brief interruption during the late Depression, it has remained on the last Thursday of November ever since. A great holiday to eat, drink, enjoy family and friends, watch football, and then go see a movie, maybe. Yet, when I sent out a typical Thanksgiving message to my congregation and community a couple years ago, I discovered people with an indigenous heritage found Thanksgiving offensive. In fact, very offensive. It harkened back to the white settlement of the Americas, the destruction of native peoples and cultures, and the colonization of their lands by whites. Now, the story we like to tell about the origins of Thanksgiving are, in fact, reflective of this. Those Puritan pilgrims landing on Cape Cod and being saved from starvation by the local Native American Wampanoag tribe and the white survivors celebrating their friendship with the tribe in October after the first semi-successful harvest, all in a giant feast. It sounds great, as though they built bridges of lasting friendship and respect across the racial, cultural, and religious lines that could have divided them. Swell. But the darker truth is that Half a century later, 50 years during King Philip's War, the white settlers and the native tribes in New England fought a brutal war of extermination that ended with the near total destruction of the Native Americans in the region and their essential replacement by white Europeans, primarily English, Scotch, and Irish settlers. The Wampanoag tribe itself, the one that saved the settlers from dying that first winter and spring, was wiped out. No less a figure than Mark Twain put it this way. Thanksgiving Day, a function which originated in New England two or three centuries ago, when those people recognized that they really had something to be thankful for, annually, not oftener, if they had succeeded in exterminating their neighbors, the Indians, during the previous 12 months, instead of getting exterminated by their neighbors, the Indians. Thanksgiving Day became a habit for the reason that in the course of time, as the years drifted on, it was perceived that the exterminating had ceased to be mutual and was all on the white man's side, consequently on the Lord's side. Hence, it was proper to thank the Lord for it and extend the usual compliments. Oof. 
I guess I understand the native problem with Thanksgiving a little better. Still, I have to say, we human beings need holidays of gratitude, times to give thanks. It's much too easy to take all that we have for granted, to simply complain about what we do not possess. Holidays often have murky origins, to be honest, and the way they come to be celebrated may not be closely tied to where they come from. St. Valentine, namesake of Valentine's Day, was a virulently anti-Semitic pope. Christmas was originally a pagan winter solstice celebration. Passover, while very ancient, is connected to much older spring celebrations held throughout the world, some of them probably fertility rites. How a holiday starts is not necessarily how it eventually turns out. We need a time to offer gratitude for what we have. We need a day to focus on family and friends. We need to make the effort to bring guests to our tables, to share in our bounty. So, in my view, enjoy your turkey, cranberry sauce, stuffing, sweet potatoes and pies, and particularly enjoy your family and friends this Thursday, and really try to give thanks for what you have, whatever the true origins of this festival. To play us in this morning, here's Israeli singer Tohar Gadasi and her version of Tov Lehodot, It's Good to Give Thanks, based on the song. That was Tov Lehodot, a song for thanks, uh, for Thanksgiving this week, by Tohar and Yair Gadasi. Our guest on Two Jewish This Morning is Susan Blomberg-Kaysen, who has told the story of a Jewish socialite who ran a remarkable salon in old Shanghai in China in the 1920s and 30s. Charlie Chaplin and Paulette Goddard and many other famous people were her guests. It's quite a story. Meet her biographer when she joins us in just a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. What is the Torah? What's the Talmud? How do Jews celebrate the Sabbath? Why do we start our days at night? How long have Jews been around? What do Jews believe about life after death? What are the major and minor Jewish holidays? What are the life cycle events for a Jew? Why is Israel so important? What is Jewish music? 
What are the best Jewish foods and why are they so connected to holidays? If you're interested in learning the ins and outs of Judaism, join Rabbi Sam Kohan for this weekly class, Sunday afternoons, 2 to 3.30 p.m., in person and on Zoom. Introductory Judaism is perfect for someone considering becoming Jewish, or coming back to Judaism, or learning about Judaism for the first time, or getting connected to Jews through relationship or marriage. Introductory Judaism runs from October to May, each Sunday afternoon. Questions? Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Or register at www.beitsimchatusan.org. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish Our Guests this morning. Susan blumberg Kaysen is the author of Bernadine's Shanghai Salon, the story of the doyen of old China. It's a colorful and fascinating book. She has written uh, several books about um, China and has really quite an interesting background. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really honored. So what prompted you to write about um, Bernadine? Well, I had started reading about Jewish Shanghai probably about 30 years ago, and her name would pop up in these books. And in the beginning, it was very positive. She was someone that brought people together. But as more people wrote about this time and included her, but it was still like a footnote, the way they wrote about her was not very nice. They portrayed her as a busybody, a socialite, a gossip. And when I found out she was from Illinois, just like me, I wanted to know more. And so I decided to find out more and I found out a lot. Boy, did you ever. Um, you know, some of I, I actually did High Holy Days in Shanghai a few years ago. Um, already knew something about the Shanghai ghetto. But this is really before all that, when Shanghai was kind of the um, social butterfly of Asia, I guess you could say. It was really quite a fascinating place. Talk a little bit about the Shanghai that she found when she uh, moved there. So it was very diverse. And also in a Jewish way, there were Baghdadi Jews who had come to Shanghai in the 1850s. And then there were more Jews from Russia that came around the Bolshevik Revolution time. So when she got there, there was this community of, of Jews, but also white Russians, Japanese, German businessmen, American businessmen, or business people, and her husband, the fourth one, was one of them. So it was very diverse. A lot of people were there for to make money. But Bernadine was interested in the arts, and so it was hard at first to break into that because it was segregated between the Chinese and the foreigners. And when she started making Chinese friends that were in the arts, her whole world opened, and she kind of introduced people that were in the arts in that weren't Chinese to their Chinese counterparts. So it, there was like this this foundation there already, but she brought people together that hadn't met before. As, as you mentioned, the Baghdadi Jews had come, um, helped make Shanghai a kind of a financial hub for China, um, but it really a complicated place um, even then. 
And uh, we'll talk much more about, oh, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin and all kinds of celebrities that pop up and wander their way through the book when we talk about Bernadine Shanghai Salon more. Come back in a moment with Susan Blumberg Kaysen in just a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, wonderful Jewish synagogue in the Catalina foothills and especially northwest Tucson, the House of Joy, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this fall and winter. Established by passion and caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy, a progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills. Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, Youth and Adult Education Academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675. Religious schools available for school-aged children or grandchildren. In our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation and Teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. Hanukkah is coming soon. Celebrate every night with us on our Facebook page with our traditional menorah lighting. And join us at Beit Simcha as we celebrate our fifth anniversary on the fourth night of Hanukkah, Sunday, December 10th at 5 p.m., Lighting the Way, a fabulous festive evening of food, music, stories, candles, and joy. World-renowned storyteller Jim Weiss will be joining us to tell some great Jewish stories. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come in person Friday night or Saturday morning. Friday nights at 6.30 p.m., followed by a delicious Oneg Shabbat. Saturday morning, Torah studies at 9 a.m., services at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. The Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. Our musical services are there and, of course, in person. All of our Adult Education Academy classes, and they are extensive, are available live and on Zoom, which you can access by going to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes programs, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation, high school programs, rich array of Adult Education Academy courses, our wonderful Hanukkah celebrations, all live and on Zoom, and of course, all of our services in person and on our Facebook page, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org, 520-276-5675, 520-276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing and most dynamic Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kvetch or Kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's 
T-O-O, Jewish Radio 18 at gmail.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, twojewishradio.com. Streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. To Jewish Radio, T O O Jewish Radio 18 at gmail.com or to Jewish Radio.com. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. Tom, last week we started talking about this um, virulent anti-Semitism that's been on view. Uh, as you noted, it isn't necessarily a surge in anti-Semitism. It's just maybe the Band-Aid's been torn off. We're getting to see the, I don't know, I don't want to get too disgusting here, but the pus underneath is sort of... The oldest, most pernicious form of human hatred seems to be anti-Semitism. Let's talk about college campuses a little bit because we've seen this kind of occasionally violent, like at Cooper Union um, in New York, form of anti-Semitism pretending to be pro-Palestinian and chanting things about genocide and tearing down pictures of, right. in, in Canada near McGill University, tearing down pictures of the many hostages brutally held by Hamas and so on. Um, how, do we exp- how do we deal with this now? Well, it's a very important question. I have to say, I feel more comfortable talking about my own country and also more comfortable talking about my own university. Sure. So I'm, for better or for worse, a graduate of Harvard. I actually have two different degrees from there. And and, and it, I have to tell you, I appreciate the fact that unlike so many people I know that went to Harvard, it's not the first thing you say about yourself <laughs> in any conversation. Far from it. <laughs> um, but I always noticed a certain degree of genteel anti-Semitism 
at Harvard, there were we didn't have fraternities. We had something eating called clubs, right? finals clubs. No, oh, eating cl- dining oh, clubs. Oh, sorry, that's Yale. Yale. Sorry, right. sorry. Right, finals clubs, and many of them had an unwritten rule that no Jews need apply. Um, and certainly, at least up through the forties and fifties, there was a de facto quota on the number of Jewish students that they would take to keep the percentage of Jews below some undisclosed number. And so Harvard has a long history of at least subtle covert anti-Semitism, if not overt violent anti-Semitism. And finally, Harvard has a president who is both African-American and female. And she came right out and said that anti-Semitism has no place at Harvard. I will fight this tooth and nail. And she said, we have, unfortunately, a long history of anti-Semitism. It's interwoven into the annals of Harvard University and Harvard history. And I am today appointing a commission of students, faculty, and community leaders to come up urgently with a strategy for combating this. Well, I think that's all well and good, and I give her a standing ovation for her clear and unequivocal statement. But... I think by the time a kid is in college, it's almost too late to combat this because the anti-Semitism is already deep within that person. And I think that the fact that all these college kids are so easily swayed by propaganda is due in no small part to the crisis in the American educational system. I mean, when I taught at the University of Arizona, I was shocked to see high school graduates from this state and from out of state who really couldn't read or write and let alone think critically. So to expect critical thinking or careful analysis from college students these days is just unreasonable. And I think this is something that our country needs to address urgently. Um, Obviously, Attacking this problem in grade school and high school isn't going to solve it right away, but it might diminish the problem in the future. So um, the problem right now is is acute. Uh, I know Jewish students on a variety of campuses who are very uncomfortable letting anybody know they're Jewish. Worried about the anti is an understatement. I think they're afraid. They're afraid, yeah. I mean, there's genuine fear, and there's reason for it. Um how how do we, as adults with some platforms, uh, address this? What's the right way to approach it for those kids? It can't just be too late for college students. If you say so. <laughs> well, we may have to keep working on this one. Thanks so much, Tom. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. The local bar was so sure its bartender was the strongest man in the world, they offered a standing $1,000 bet. The bartender would squeeze a lemon until all the juice ran into a glass then hand the lemon to a patron. Anybody who could squeeze even one more drop of juice out would win the money. Many people had tried over time, but nobody could do it. 
One day, this scrawny little guy came into the bar wearing thick glasses and a cheap polyester suit and said in a tiny voice, I'd like to take the bet. After the laughter died down, the bartender said, Okay, grabbed a lemon and squeezed away. Then he handed the wrinkled remains of the Rhine to the little man. The crowd's laughter, however, turned to total silence. The man clenched his fist around the lemon and six more drops fell into the glass. The crowd cheered. The bartender paid out the thousand dollars and then asked the little guy, What do you do for a living? Are you like a lumberjack, a weightlifter, a bodybuilder, what? And the scrawny little guy replied, No, I'm a fundraiser for the Jewish Community Federation. That was the old Jewish Joke of the Week special feature, Too Jewish, Just for You, You Should Live and Be Well. Maybe it's called the Jewish Philanthropies now? Same attempted result. And now a word of Torah. Jacob is the most interesting and confounding of all the patriarchs and matriarchs. He is, in a literal sense, the true father of our people, since it is his twelve sons who are the ancestors of the twelve tribes of Israel. But what a complicated dad our people has. On the one hand, he has many characteristics we should admire. Jacob's intelligent, industrious, courageous, romantic, creative, clever, and prolifically productive. He repeatedly triumphs over better-equipped adversaries and eventually creates a huge family that will evolve from a clan into a nation, our nation. Jacob lives an extraordinary and extraordinarily important life. Without him, monotheism would not have survived. On the other hand, Jacob is also tricky, manipulative, whiny, and as duplicitous as a modern-day politician. Throughout his life, he is far more concerned with results than morality. He's an awful sibling, a lousy son to his father, a mediocre husband, and a spectacularly bad parent. He repeatedly ends up in weirdly terrible situations that he has either directly or indirectly caused. And while he benefits from others' forgiveness, he himself holds on to grudges until his very last breath. At the beginning of the Torah portion of Ayetze, our hero Jacob is in full flight from his furious brother Esau, rushed out of town by his mother Rebecca, after he cons his father and defrauds his brother out of the family birthright blessing. He lies down and puts his head on a rock, and has that famous dream of angels going up and down a stairway to heaven, with God at the top of it. The Lord promises Jacob he'll become the father of a nation, and the very land he is lying on will belong to him and his descendants forever. Jacob awakens and famously says, God was in this place, and I, I didn't know it. Thus reassured, he heads out towards the old country, his grandfather Abraham's town of Haran, to seek his fortune. Arriving there, he immediately falls desperately in love with Rachel, so much so that he agrees to work for seven years without pay in order to marry her. He's then tricked by an even more duplicitous dude, his father-in-law Laban, and you thought your in-laws were problematic, who pawns off his less attractive daughter Leah on the unsuspecting and possibly inebriated Jacob. Jacob is forced to agree to work another seven years just to get the bride he originally contracted for. It gets messier from there. 
Children follow in rapid succession. Two more wives come along. The domestic complications of his household, the tricks and tribulations of his willful wives and rambunctious sons multiply. After 14 years, Jacob's household has expanded exponentially, but his pockets are empty. He then agrees to work for that same trickster, Laban, for another six years in order to build up a grub stake. Using advanced genetic manipulation techniques, he somehow contrives to create a huge dividend for himself, which leads to a quick escape for Jacob and his whole gang from the land of Laban. After a final conflict in which everyone present is manipulating everybody else, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, the secondary wives Bilhah and Zilpah, and 12 children plus all those sheep, goats, and cows head west towards Canaan. And this weekly installment of The Perils of Jacob concludes with another cliffhanger. Look, everybody in Vayetze is on the make in one way or another. If the Torah is a spiritual and inspirational text, what are we to think of a narrative replete with deception and manipulation? Interestingly, in spite of the very real, very human fallibility of our hero, despite the less-than-stellar conduct of all the men and women in our portion, by the conclusion, everything seems to have worked out. Jacob's descendants are positioned to grow into the nation God predicted. Everyone is now headed back to the land that God promised. In essence, God has had an eye on the end result even when the supremely fallible human beings involved did not. The abiding message may simply be that we may not always act well or demonstrate sound judgment, but God can somehow bring us all home. When we return in a moment, our guest this morning, Susan blumberg Kaysen, fills us in on Shanghai, China, and why a Jewish woman's salon became the center of its social life in the 20s and 30s, Hear all about it when we come back in a moment on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Nearly 300,000 people rallied at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. last week in support of Israel. In solidarity with the hostages held by the Palestinian terrorists of Hamas, and in opposition to the rising tide of anti-Semitism in America and worldwide. The speakers and music at the giant rally were unifying and showed the tremendous support Israel enjoys in the U.S., in contrast to the pro-Palestinian terrorists' protests on college campuses and elsewhere over the six weeks since Hamas's brutal atrocities of October 7th. The huge crowd waved Israeli flags, wore all kinds of pro-Israel clothing, sang along with Israeli songs and had banners supporting the hostages and President Joe Biden for his strong support for Israel in this traumatic time. The gigantic rally included every kind of Jew you can imagine in America. Orthodox, reform, conservative, right-wing, left-wing, feminist, young, old, American, Israeli, Ashkenazic, Sephardic, and so on. It was a remarkable affirmation of Jewish unity, of Klal Yisrael, a demonstration of the underlying connection we all feel, 
a shining moment of light at a time of profound challenge for Jews here in America and all over the world. In other news, Israel captured the Hamas terrorist center located in the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, unearthing a massive cache of assault rifles, grenades, ammunition, Hamas uniforms, RPGs, and flak jackets, all in the hospital. The amount of armaments Hamas had stockpiled in Al-Shifa hospital was described by international media as jaw-dropping. The hospital sits atop a Hamas terrorist military headquarters, A fact confirmed not only by the Israeli military, but by U.S. military intelligence. So much for the humanitarian concerns about the hospital, which has been used by Hamas as a center for attacking Israel. Tragically, one of the Israeli hostages, a 65-year-old woman, was definitely identified among the dead in the hospital. California, the Ventura County Sheriff's Office has arrested a man in connection with the death of Paul Kessler the 69-year-old Jewish pro-Israel activist who was killed in a confrontation during a demonstration in an L.A. suburb. Loai Abdel Fatah al-Naji, 50 years old of Park, was charged with involuntary manslaughter. His bail set at a million dollars. The sheriff's office declined to share further information, including the possibility the case was being investigated as a hate crime. Involuntary manslaughter is usually applied in cases where authorities believe a killing was unintentional. Al-Naji has been identified as the main suspect in the investigation. Ventura County Sheriff James Fryhoff said the suspect was briefly detained back then while investigators executed a search warrant in his home. He was cooperative with deputies. Social media watchdogs and news organizations identified Al-Naji as the likely suspect using photographs from the scene. He worked as a professor of computer science at local colleges and has posted pro-Palestinian terrorist content on social media. Kessler's death had been ruled a homicide. The Ventura County Chief Medical Examiner said the physicians who assessed Kessler as well as an autopsy performed on him observed an injury to his face that could have been caused by being struck with a megaphone, which the local Jewish Federation said took place. It was a blow to the back of Kessler's head caused by his fall that turned out to be fatal, said the examiner, Dr. Christopher Young. Of course, he fell because he was hit in the face with a megaphone. Kessler's death was... So far, the only one associated with a wave of demonstrations for and against Israel in the wake of Hamas's October 7th murderous terror attack on Israel. Scuffles have broken out at many of them. In Cleveland, Ohio, vandals struck a Jewish cemetery over the weekend, defacing two dozen headstones with anti-Semitic graffiti, prompting outrage from local Jewish officials who called the incident sickening. Well, it is. The desecration of the Jewish cemetery in the Cleveland suburb of Brooklyn came amid a precipitous rise in hate crimes and incidents across the country, targeting Jews and Jewish communities ever since October 7th. More than 1,200 Israeli civilians and soldiers were murdered in the Palestinian terrorist atrocities of Hamas, including babies, children, women, the elderly, and peace activists. The vandalism at the Chesed Shalemet Cemetery in Brooklyn, Ohio, was discovered by police around 10 a.m. Sunday when officers were notified of the damage by a passerby. The vandalism is believed to have taken place sometime late last Saturday night. Officers discovered 23 headstones with anti-Semitic graffiti scrawled on them in red spray paint. 
So far, no arrests have been made in this cowardly anti-Semitic incident. Volunteers from the local Jewish community gathered at the cemetery and cleaned the graffiti from the headstones by hand. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews Round the World. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Susan Blumberg-Kaysen is the author of Bernadine's Shanghai Salon, the story of the doyen of old China. Uh, she's she also wrote a good Chinese wife, a love affair with China gone wrong. Co-editor of Hong Kong Noir, and uh, has published regularly in a variety of publications, um, mostly about China. So, what started your fascination with China? I know you studied in Hong Kong. Yeah, so I feel like both of my parents had a China connection in one way or another. My dad was a graduate student. Um, in the late 40s and early 50s. And one of his best friends was from Shanghai. And my dad was with him when this friend found out that the civil war there had ended and the communists had won. And my dad's friend could not go back because he came from a capitalist background. And so my dad was very close to this friend. And he, the friend ended up becoming a professor at Columbia and introduced Americans to contemporary Chinese authors at that time. So we always had that, those stories, and my, he was my dad's best friend. And then my dad taught chemistry in Chicago, and in the early 80s started getting students from China. And most of them were women who had a child and a husband, but they were in America for the women to study here. And they became like older sisters to me. They would come over for Thanksgiving, but sometimes even Passover and Fourth of July. And then on my mom's side, her best friend taught in Shanghai in 1980 to 1981. And she just happened to be my high school English teacher 
later that decade and took me to China with a group of students and teachers when I was 17 going on 18. So I had like from both sides of my family, I had these, you know, kind of periphery connections to China. And then when I start, when I went there, I just loved it. And we couldn't go to Hong Kong on that trip because it cost too much. So I was determined to study there in college and I loved it. The, um, the really person that you're uh, writing about, Bernadine, has a, a, a little bit similar background. As you know, she's from Chicago. But uh, on her fourth husband, when she arrives in Shanghai, um, she first creates um, something that Jewish women often did in complicated social situations, a kind of salon in which she brings people together and and then uh, creates a theater later, um, and just a, a constellation of Hollywood and other stars uh, wander through her situation. Tell us a little bit about uh, how all that worked. Well, so she was fortunate because when she lived in Chicago and New York and Paris, she was in these groups of famous people, whether they were writers like Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald or actors, um, or artists. And so when she got to Shanghai and she started meeting Chinese artists or people in the art field, she started a salon in her home to bring people together and talk about a music piece or a piece of poetry. And it, it got to be so large and people could hear because there were like 150 people at her house. So she started a theater company based on a theater in Chicago that she had acted in as a late teen in her early 20s. So she she brought this experience from Chicago. And then in Paris, she attended Gertrude Stein's salon. So she bottled her salon in Shanghai after that. Um, she wasn't a great mom. That kind of comes out in the book. Um, tell us about that a little bit. She was married four times by the age of 33, and she had a daughter with her first husband. And Bernadine was only about um, 19 years old when her daughter was born. And the divorce was very contentious, and there was a custody battle. And it seemed like Bernadine really wanted to be a mom, but almost as soon as she won the custody battle, she she started acting in Chicago and writing for a newspaper so her parents took care of her daughter, and that was something that continued. But in but then when she moved to New York and Paris and Shanghai, she had her daughter in boarding school, and so they never bonded during those formative years. And her daughter Rosemary wanted to be an actress, and she became a stand-in for Catherine Hepburn. And I think she wanted her mother's approval because this was a field Bernadine was so entrenched in, and. For some reason, Bernadine just could not bond with Rosemary, and I don't know. I don't know why, because this is not what she had at home. Her parents were very attentive. They were married. They never divorced. So, it, it was a mystery as to why Bernadine was so distant from, just physically and emotionally, from Rosemary. There's um, a, a beautiful quote from her that you have in the book. 
Um, in general, I believe in making a few deep immortal friendships. That's for the delight of the soul. But if people can come together in groups through altruistic motives, I think there's no more fascinating experiment. And if I may say so, no more exacting social discipline. She worked hard at this, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, her husband says, okay, you don't have to work. It's the first time she hasn't had financial worries uh, through three previous marriages in her whole life. Um, and so it, it's not like she doesn't, I mean, this doesn't come together because she's flitting about. Um, th this is her profession, really, in a way, right? Right, right, right. This is what she lived for. And she loved when she introduced people and then they would go on to create something whether it was a piece of music or art or a journal. So she just loved the results of those. And when she brought people together, it was, it was like her proudest moment. And also producing these ballets in Shanghai and plays that had an all Chinese cast that was unheard of outside of Shanghai. And, um, she just, she just loved when people came together through the arts, whether they were in the audience or they were performing, it was a great joy to her. Um, there's a, I, I just want to go back briefly to the, excuse me, the Jewish community in Shanghai. Um, she, she knew like she knew everybody. It must, it must not have been large, but clearly it was influential. She knew the Sassoon families or Victor Sassoon, um, who comes and visits her in L.A. later on after she leaves Shanghai. Did she leave because of the Civil War, because of the coming of, you know, the invasion and all? No, that was just a coincidental. So her daughter, Rosemary, fell ill in New York when Rosemary was acting. And Bernadine had never gone to help Rosemary. And Bernadine's husband, Chester, did not encourage a relationship with Rosemary. And so that was part of the problem, but it had started before she married him. But at this time when Rosemary fell ill, Chester pushed her to go to New York and take care of Rosemary. So I think Bernadine felt like she had to do this because she hadn't before. She didn't feel like Chester, they were not, had, their relationship was not great. So I think she felt he wanted her out of Shanghai and she just needed this time maybe to be away from him. And then soon after she left, the Japanese military bombed Shanghai. And that was really the beginning of World War II. It, it was kind of... Yeah, I know it was. Um, yeah, so it was impossible to go back after that. Uh, it sort of feels like she missed it. That that she she never really found her place, even though she was still hosting events and knowing people. Um, that for her, Shanghai was always the maybe the apex of her life experience. Yeah, I agree with that because she was the only one doing that in Shanghai. In L.A., there everybody, were a lot of other yeah, there yeah. was lots of yeah. uh, <clears throat> lots of parties going on there. Um, the, the movie crowd wasn't just gravitating to one place, right? It was, took over the whole town. Um, Susan, where can people go to find out more about you and to, uh, and to find the book, Bernadine Shanghai Salon? Well, the book is available at any place where they sell books. So if a bookstore doesn't have it, they can always order it 
or if people order things online, any independent bookstore has it in their database. I just started listening to the audio, which is really fun because someone else is reading it and she's doing a great job. So it's, it's on audio, ebook, um, paperback. And I have a website. It's Susan B as in boy, Kaysen.com. And I have things about Bernadine and past, um, YouTube interviews about her when I was writing the book and the research process and all that. It, it's a fascinating book. I want to thank uh, Susan Blumberg Kaysen for a great visit here on Two Jewish. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week, our guest... Very timely guest will be Mike Rothschild, author of Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services in Onig Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading, Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Save the date. Actually, sign up now. Sunday, December 10th, 5th anniversary celebration of Congregation Beit Simcha lighting the way for Hanukkah and our 5th anniversary. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up and celebrate. Our play out this morning comes from Israeli singer Omer Adam. He was there at the recent rally of 300,000 people for Israel in Washington, D.C. This is a live recording of his song, Modani Kol Boker, I Thank You Each Morning, God. It's a song, well, for Thanksgiving and in solidarity with Israel, in solidarity with the almost 240 hostages still held prisoner by Hamas, with the soldiers of the IDF fighting now with the many injured and wounded in Israeli hospitals, with the families of the murdered Israelis, Americans, French, British, Thais, and other nationals. My friends, may you have a great Thanksgiving, a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice.
sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.